Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. On today's podcast, Susan Jane White is back with another book. This time it's a collection of whole food batch cook recipes to save you time and money in her new book, cleverly called Clever Batch. Later she shares her kitchen ninja secrets with Roisin Ingle. But first, Giving birth is the land that feminism forgot and women need to control in the delivery room. That's the core point being made by journalist and founder of the positive birth movement, Millie Hill, in her new book, Give Birth Like a Feminist. In today's podcast, she speaks to our co-producer, Jennifer Ryan, about why nurses and midwives should ensure that the mother is the one making decisions on the labour ward and why there are parallels between the treatment of pregnant women and sexual harassment in the pre-Me Too era. Millie Hill, you're a journalist, but you're also the founder of the Positive Birth Movement. For anyone listening to this podcast who might not be familiar with it, can you explain first uh, what that's about and why you decided to found it? Sure. So um, the Positive Birth Movement is an organisation that I set up seven years ago um, now. And basically what it is, is it's a network of real life um, antenatal groups where women can go and meet other women, um, other pregnant women and their partners and listen to positive birth stories, which come in all different shapes and forms, um, and talk to each other and share information about their rights and about their choices in birth. And there are about 300 groups around the world. Um, There's about 200 in the UK, and I think there's five in Ireland. And um, basically, the idea of it is that it's all linked up by social media. So I had the idea for it myself when I was kind of like in the midst of my own pregnancies and thinking a lot about birth. And also when social media was really kind of taking off, I suppose, for everybody. Um, So I just kind of thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could use social media somehow to connect women together more so that they can share information in a way that was already happening, but just to bring it all under one umbrella. So that's what it is. It's a network of groups all linked up by social media. And you wrote a book called The Positive Birth Book. And now you've written a second one, which is called Give Birth Like a Feminist. Can you tell me why you decided to write it? Um, Well, I was just so excited to be given the opportunity to write it, really. I mean, I think the whole reason that I got involved in the birth conversation in the first place is because deep down, I've always felt that this was a feminist issue. Mm. And um, suddenly, I found that I was putting that idea, you know, out there through through journalism, etc. And that a publisher was interested in me actually writing that book. So for me, that was an amazing moment to be, you know, to be given the opportunity to kind of bring together all of the thinking I'd done about birth over the last decade, really, in, in, into one place and to see it, put it all through a feminist lens. And in the book, you talk about the fact that when it comes to birth, the prevailing message that pregnant people are on the receiving end of when they express any fear or concern or maybe ask some questions is that a healthy baby is all that matters. 
yes, that's, you know, certainly the end goal. But you say that reducing it to that one thing implies that a pregnant person's experience doesn't matter so long as a healthy baby is the result of it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a problematic phrase and the way it kind of trips off people's tongues is is worrying. Um, it, it gives women two messages. First of all, it comes to them when they're in their pregnancy um, and they start to take an active role in looking into their birth choices, thinking about what kind of birth they want. Then they will often hear that phrase. Well, you know, just remember that it's a, what we're looking for here is a healthy baby. So, you know, that's all that really matters. And it's well-meaning. But somehow what it's saying is, you know, kind of, you know, take a back seat here. And I think it's quite disempowering. And then any other time that it comes to women is after they've had their baby, um, if they try to raise their voice and say, you know, I really wasn't comfortable with what happened to me in that situation. They then get reminded, well, you know, just focus on your healthy baby. That's all that matters. So then it becomes quite a silencing phrase because it's basically saying, well, you know, I just think there's an undercurrent there that's saying women don't matter and we need to challenge that. Women who take an interest, an active interest in how their birth actually is, what their actual experience is like for them as a person, as a human, shouldn't be discouraged from doing that because, you know, it is a massive day in a woman's life and women matter. And the beginning of the book is an exploration of that whole idea of the power imbalance in the birth room. And a lot of pregnant people, and I think particularly first time mothers, will experience a lack of agency when it comes to giving birth. And a lot of women who you've spoken to and the stories that you share in this book, they didn't know that they were allowed to ask questions or make any choices about their birth. So how can we change that? Well, by just continuing to spread the message, I think that women do have agency in birth and they do have a right to ask questions and they do have a right to um, decline things that they don't feel comfortable about, etc. I mean, it's shocking how how that message is not spreading very far still. You know, I, I speak at like mainstream maternity events and my whole talk is normally about, you know, rights in birth and choice in birth. And these are all the different choices and this is how you make a birth plan. But the kind of overriding point that a lot of people get who come to those talks and they come up to me afterwards to talk about it is just simply that I didn't know that I had a choice about these things. You know, and it's shocking mm. <laughs> to think that people are going into um, the birth experience, not just being misinformed about what choices they have, but being misinformed that they actually even have a choice, that they have a voice, that they have any autonomy. We wouldn't accept that in any other area of our lives, being you know, on the back foot all the time and having to kind of ask permission for everything. If, we, if that was happening in our relationship or in our work life, we just simply wouldn't accept it in the 21st century. So I don't think we should be accepting it in birth either. Yeah, and that's that whole issue of consent in maternity care. It's, it's poorly understood and it hasn't been properly addressed yet. And the word consent is used quite oddly in maternity care, it's, it's, it's used as a verb. Can you explain what's meant by consent when it comes to maternity care? Because I know in, in the book as well, you have like a, a list of, of, of terms that are used in the birthing room and what they actually mean in real life. And consent is one of those. Yeah, well, sometimes uh, midwives or health professionals will talk about, you know, they'll say, well, I'm just going to go and consent her when they talk about, um, you know, going to what they should be saying is, <laughs> I'm going to go and ask this woman what she wants to do, etc. And but they're using it as a 
as a verb, as in almost as if the woman is passive in that decision and the, the professional is active. Um, and sometimes, you know, there's a lot of talk about informed consent, but we should really be talking about informed decision making because it, even saying informed consent carries with it the underlying assumption that the woman is going to agree with, to what's being offered to her. Um, you know, and, and, you know, when you watch programs like One One Every Minute, for example, you know, you will quite often see um, health professionals using phrases like, um, I'm just going to do this, or um, I, I, we, we, we need to do that. Mm. Um, and quite often, you know, the language is very relaxed and, you know, it's very diff- it's, it's hard to put your finger on it, but somehow everything it, it within it, embedded within it, is the fact that the professional is in charge and that woman, the woman doesn't actually have a right to say no to what's about to happen to her. Now, the key, a really important point is that this is not about women going into their birth experiences saying no to everything. Mm. What it's about is about the underlying power dynamic, the, the power structures beneath all those interchanges. So the example that I often use is that in a sexual relationship, um, hopefully you have an understanding with your partner that if you say no to something that they will stop. Now you might have been with your partner for 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, and you might never have actually exercised that right to say no, but you've always known that that, that possibility is there and that they will respect your choice. And that dynamic has underpinned your sexual relationship. Well, imagine how different that relationship would have been if there'd been a shadow of doubt in your mind that you had the right to say no, the right to use your voice in the bedroom, the right to um, decline anything. That is the dynamic in which most women are giving birth in the 21st century Western world. You know, so that's that's what I'm trying to challenge. It's not about going around saying, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with this medical intervention or anything like that. We all know that it can be life-saving, but we need to change that power dynamic so that women know that they have a voice. Well, it's this idea, I know you use examples in the book where, say, a woman could be undergoing internal examination and then they hear something like, oh, well, the obstetrician did a sweep while he was down there. Things are happening to women in birth. Those are the, those, that's such a great example because that, that have, I hear that story quite often that women, you say that they've, they have consented to one thing. They've said mm. they will have a, a sweep, which is like, you know, they try to um, trigger your labor by sort of sweeping their finger around the top of your vagina. Um, and, you know, they've agreed to that. But then afterwards, they're told, oh, um, by the way, I've broken your waters. Mm-hmm. So they haven't consented to that. But it's very difficult in these situations to sort of pinpoint what's happened and to complain because it's sort of all it's all dressed up in a sort of package of maternity care. So it is difficult to, you know, to sort of it, I think often women are so shocked by incidents like that, they're not quite sure what to do about it. Well, then it, it comes under that heading that you use in the book as well of obstetric violence. And it, while it sounds like a very harsh term, it is what it is. And you use the awful story of Kimberly Turban to illustrate what is meant by this term. And I know it's it's a scale like any any sort of violence. It is a scale and it can be just breaking a woman's waters without asking her permission to what uh, happened to Kimberly Turban. Can you give a little bit of context? I know it's a difficult story to talk about, but I think it is worth mentioning. 
Okay, so Kimberly Turban was a woman um, in America who, um, and her one of her relatives was filming the birth, as quite often happens. Um, and what happened in her case was that um, she, the, the obstetrician who was actually already sitting kind of on a stool between her knees waiting for the baby to be born to begin with. So, I mean, we could have another whole conversation about practices like that mm. and how disempowering they are and how unhelpful they are to women uh, who are trying to give birth. But anyway, he was sat there and... Um, he wanted to do an episiotomy and she said, no, I don't want an episiotomy. I want to, I want to try and give birth without it. Why can't I try? And he started being very derogatory towards her saying things like, well, why don't you go, go back to Kentucky kind of implying that she was back, you know, her, she, her desire for a natural birth implied that she was backward in some way. And eventually against her will, um, he did cut her. Um, and, and for our listeners was, who might not know what an episiotomy is, can you explain it? I mean, it's it's one of those words that when you become pregnant, it's it's a word you, you learn very quickly and it's something that most women would want to avoid. Yes, it's it's a cut to the perineum, which is the, the skin between your vagina and your bottom, um, which just allows the vaginal opening to become a little bit bigger to help the baby get out. And sometimes it's necessary or it could be considered necessary, again, as a whole new conversation to, to be had around mm-hmm. episiotomy itself. Um, but uh, quite often it's used in forceps deliveries, etc. So it does happen sometimes. Um, but in this case, it was done completely and utterly without her consent, and the whole thing was captured on camera. Um, and the interesting thing about what happened to her is that she, you know, it wasn't really unusual that that, that had happened, really. There are lots of cases of women getting things without consent in childbirth. But what was different about Kimberly was, A, that it was captured on camera, mm. and B, that she then decided to do something about it. She decided to, to complain. Mm. So she did, with the help of an advocacy organization, um, she did uh, bring bring a case, and uh, it was eventually settled out of court, I, I believe. But... Um, yeah. yeah. So that's an example of, of of obstetric violence that you can kind of pin down and say, well, this is clearly a violent act against her. Having said that, it was very difficult. It took them a year to find a lawyer to represent her because most of the people that they approached, the advocacy organization approached, just felt, well, that's just part of childbirth. You know, the doctor was just doing what he felt needed to be done to get the baby out safely. So there is that kind of pervading idea and it mm. goes, you know, I think it comes into all of our consciousnesses, like the woman we were talking about who maybe has her waters broken while they're in there. You know, maybe she, half of her thinks, oh, I wasn't expecting that to happen. The other half of her thinks, oh, well, you know, I guess they're just doing their best. You know, they they know what they're doing. And, you know, so. There is that very- belief that these, the, the medical professionals and, and, you know, they do know what they're doing. <laughs> you know, we're not going to say they don't, but there is, you just accept things as yeah. necessary in the moment. And it goes back to that idea of the end result being the most important thing, a healthy baby. But one of the most ironic things I think about women's bad experiences of childbirth is that often it is women midwives that they have encountered along the way. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the majority of of people working in the birth world are women, of course. Um, And, you know, we have to be clear that this is about a systemic problem. It's not personal. Mm. So if anyone is listening to this who's a midwife or or an obstetrician, it's not about you personally. It's It's about how this culture has grown across the system. And yes, that system has its roots in patriarchy because we live in a patriarchy. (laughs) 
the birth room isn't exempt from it. You can't generalise all women's experiences of birth, of course, but I guess it's hard not to when you're writing this type of book because it's based on, for a large part, the negative experiences that women have had. And what it's about, I think, is preparing others so that they can ask the right questions and know that they don't have to put up with certain things, that they can say no or they can just question why certain things are being done. But I wonder, uh, have you gotten some flack over that? Not yet. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to say that. I was expecting some some negative blowback. I was expecting it myself. But I, to be honest, I think the majority of people so far have been very um, grateful for the book because I think people can see, you know, that I've tried to write it in a very balanced way, mm. which is not trying to ignite um, war between, you know, obstetricians, midwives, women or anybody else. Um, and I've tried um, to write it in the most non-judgmental way that I can. So hopefully that's come across. But I mean, I do think, you know, there's going to be some of that because this I'm challenging the status quo. So you can't really do that without coming in for some flack. But maybe that will come. <laughs> I'm still in the brave position. <laughs> well, and another thing I should point out about the book as well, and um, because people might might not think so from the title, Give Birth Like a Feminist, you, there is no one way of giving birth that is seen as correct in this book. You are very open minded and you don't put any judgment on how anybody decides to proceed with their birth. No, absolutely. And I think I've always tried to write in, the, in that balanced way and to present ideas in that balanced way, because I do think it is a personal choice for women. And obviously, we're all making our personal choices against a cultural backdrop. So, you know, we're all influenced by the fear and everything around us at the moment in, in, in birth. But generally speaking, yes, you know, I think I think there are two conversations we need to have. One of them is about natural birth, and that is a real sort of hot potato, isn't it, that sometimes we want to avoid talking about. But I think I think as feminists, we do need to have a conversation about natural birth and about the fact that the majority, well, many, many women want to have a straightforward vaginal birth and natural birth, and most of those women will not get that experience. So that is a conversation that we need to have. But we also need to have about a conversation about improving birth across the board because there are no situations, there are no types of birth in which more empathy for the woman can't improve that birth experience for her. So, yes, I've written extensively in this book and everywhere else about um, improving cesarean, for example. And there are some clinicians who are doing wonderful work in that area who are looking at, you know, looking at from looking at cesarean from the woman's perspective and thinking, oh, actually, this is. For us, this is a working day. For her, this is a very you know, important rite of passage, a moment in her life she'll never forget. How can we improve it? So mm. giving birth like a feminist is about knowing that you have choices, using your voice, exercising those choices. It isn't about having a home water birth. <laughs> and one of the things you, you mentioned it just a, a couple of minutes ago is uh, that whole idea of not all midwives, not all obstetricians. And for every midwife or doctor who has treated a woman in the maternity system as less than, there are, of course, a, a, any number who do a wonderful job. But the, the thing about that is it's it's like the Me Too movement. That that doesn't mean that we cannot talk about the things that shouldn't happen, right? Absolutely. 
And there is, you know, there are lots of midwives and obstetricians who are applauding this conversation happening mm. because they see it too in their work. They see the culture that uh, that disrespects women, that that doesn't properly, um, you know, seek consent or um, talk, you know, uh, have informed decision making, shared decision making. Um, it, it's it's complicated because we are in an overstretched system at the moment where you know everyone is trying their best. And often the midwives and other people involved in the situation aren't being properly cared for either in, in the work that they're doing. They're working long hours and it's it's thankless. Um, but yes, it, I think it's really important that we don't get distracted by sort of backpedaling and saying, well, you know, it's really, you know, we've got to focus on all these people who are having a positive experience because we know that some people are having great birth experiences and we know that um, most clinicians are doing their best. But we do need to talk, just like as you say with me too, we need to talk about things that aren't right. That mm. That's a conversation that's valid and worth having. Yeah, I think you're totally right, because I know the in the Irish Health Service, and I'm sure the NHS is in a very similar place, it's under huge pressure. There aren't enough staff. Conditions need to improve for the ones that are there. For most midwives and doctors, they are working, as you say, in an imperfect system. So really, you know, they, they also need support so that we can all have the maternity system we deserve. So hopefully, you know, that's a that's something that will happen. Um, yeah. One final thing I wanted to ask you, you looked to Ireland a number of times in the book and you mentioned the referendum that we had recently on the Eighth Amendment here, which was yeah. influenced in no small part by the deaths of a number of women in the Irish maternity system that really shouldn't have happened, including Savita Halapanavar. And yeah. just, just a few months ago on a national radio station, RTE, and a phone-in show with the long-running presenter there, Joe Duffy, was inundated with the stories of women's experiences in the Irish maternity system. And it feels like we are finally talking about these things more, that women are finding a voice. And are you hopeful that conversations like these can have a positive impact? I think that what happened on RTE was absolutely brilliant. Um, and, you know, I think that we need more of that because I think just like with Me Too, often women don't realise that they've that something has happened to them that they have a right to complain about. And yet suddenly when one woman starts to tell her story, everybody kind of, it, you know, has a snowball effect. And there's that safety in numbers feeling where people think, yes, I can come forward about this. So I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and we definitely need more um spaces where women can feel confident to to talk about what wasn't right about their birth experience without having this kind of platitudes of you know well don't forget you've got a healthy baby and that's all that matters etc thrown at them which happens so much but yes I mean the, the situation in Ireland is is a great example of of how you know with the eighth amendment and everything of, of how and obviously the focus around that discussion is about um abortion um but you know it does there are it does have other effects it that that it pervades into the birth room this idea of the baby having some rights mm. um and um the the religious background etc um you know does affect women's actual birth experiences and choices as well um, I know when I was talking to midwives in Dublin, when I visited, um, they were telling me that women who who have a birth plan and who want to sort of take an active role are quite often referred to as difficult women. Um, and uh, in another story, um, a woman who gave birth in Ireland in 2015 said to me that her um, care provider said to her, you will give birth when, where and how we decide. And when she protested that, they said, Clearly, someone has to be the voice of your baby since you are not being very rational. So, right. <laughs> that's, I just, you know, it's a good example, isn't it, of how, yeah. you know, 
um, the Eighth Amendment kind of pervades into the birth room as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously, we, we know we need to let go of this idea that women um, don't have the best interests of their baby at, at heart, mm-hmm. at number one priority, because that women very much do. Um, and they want to be informed and they want to make the right choices. But, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that if they do something that the that health professionals disagree with, that they are, you know, they need to be brought back into line. Yeah, we didn't even get into the whole issue of birth plans. And I think we could do a whole podcast on that. Um, but <laughs> full disclosure to our listeners, I'm sitting here eight months pregnant at the moment and I'm eating up uh, birthing books left, right and centre. But I'm definitely adding uh, Give Birth Like Feminist by Millie Hill to uh, to the ones that I will be pressing into fellow pregnant women's hands from now on. And I just want to say thank you very much for writing the book and uh, best of luck with it. Thank you so much for having me and I hope you have a brilliant birth. Oh, me too. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> the Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Now, Susan Jane White has crammed heaps of nourishing dishes that can sit in your fridge all week or hang on your kitchen shelf, ready to be assembled at a moment's notice, into her new book, Clever Batch. She talks to Roisin about how to ensure that every meal is healthy and delicious, no matter how many people are eating or how quickly it needs to be assembled. Susan, I love the title of your book. It's called Clever Batch and we can all uh, understand why it's called Batch. Um, and I had some other alternative titles. What a complete batch. <laughs> Smack my batch up. Oh, it's endless possibilities. But um, the name is great. It's all about making life easier in the kitchen, which is music to all the ears of listeners, I think, who's, who are juggling all that. Even if you don't have kids, just yes. getting your dinner on the table is a massive event and achievement. So tell us about the concept of the book, first of all. Yes. Well, in truth, the concept of the book came because I wanted to write myself a book. Um, I was at a stage in my life where I had a lot less money, a lot less time and a lot less patience. Um, and I didn't want another cookbook in my kitchen. I wanted a personal cleaner and a personal cook. (laughs) And I didn't want another freaking meditation app that everyone was telling me to download. So I just ended up um, through circumstances which were beyond my control. I was either spending all my time in uh, looking after sick people or um, trying to um, squash different fires that were going on in my personal life. Um, And so I just decided I'm going to have to um, nourish myself um, by making massive batches of really good nourishing food, which would feed me and my family at a time where they really do need nourishment. And then it just kind of took a whole life of its own and a rhythm of its own. And it's how I survived. So Monday to Friday, I wasn't even cooking. And I don't I don't even know if there's a cookbook on the market who that discourages you from cooking Monday to Friday. But this one does. <laughs> I, that's, that's why I like the sound of it. Anything that appeals to my lazy side, which is very large, um, uh, appeals to me. So you are basically talking about uh, the, 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 the recipes because what you do is very nutritious. It's, you know, you had an immune mm-hmm. disorder when you were in your 20s. Correct. Which kind of led to this yeah. food odyssey in a way. Like you yeah. weren't always the healthiest eater. No, I definitely wasn't. I used to mainline burgers and curly whirlies and caffeine. I just can't imagine it. I'm looking at you and I just can't see a curly whirly in your life at all. 
oh, there's bang, 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 one after the other. I couldn't just have one. I'd be like going for a second and third. And when you're young, you think you're invincible. You think that healthy food is really for people who um, uh, later in life are sick or are losing their hair or just ageing. Um, so it never occurred to me that I would actually have to. And also everyone was eating the same diet. You get up in the morning, you have cereal, you're, you had like a pizza or, or sandwiches at lunchtime and then you had pasta in the evening. So when I looked at my diet, I was eating the same stuff and none of it was nutritious. It was just white flour and uh, white sugar and nothing that's going to excite my toes um, or my brain cells. So eventually, you know, I, I was digging my way to the grave with my teeth, um, as one of the doctors had said to me. Um, and uh, a nice doctor. Nice doctor, yeah. <laughs> nice. And, and a, a moment, an epiphany, <laughs> which I, I pretty much <laughs> realised that, um, yeah, I have to start looking after myself right now. Um, and I didn't fancy having to learn how to cook. I wasn't cooking either at the time. I enjoyed baking, but cooking was something I thought that just, you know, boring people with lame social lives did. <laughs> and now I realise that it's smart people who cook and actually very smart people batch cook. Because if you're not going to look after your body, no one else is going to do it for you. Yeah. So and especially as the years go on, and I've had children and I'm cooking for other people. I'm the kind of person who likes to, to give my cooking to people. And there's always someone sick in your life, right? Um, so I'm, I'm on a weekly basis. I'm doing little doorstep drops to people who need it in their life. And it feels really good. And they appreciate it. And I appreciate that I'm able to, to, to offer this extra nutrition to them. Um, and it makes sense in a way that, you know, Curly Whirlies never did. Well, you're talking about um, creating meals. And I like the way you described this, that will sit in your fridge, mm -hmm. that they'll hang out on the shelves and they'll wait patiently in the freezer. Yeah. So there's basically when you're making this food, it's with the idea that it's going to serve your future self in a way. Like, you know, your, yes. your Wednesday self yes. um, is going to really appreciate you. It's going to say, yes. oh, I'm so relieved. Like we do with a hangover sometimes, you know, the night before. If we, some yeah. people, I don't, but yeah, some yeah, people yeah. leave a can of Coke beside their bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they know. Or Barack exactly. or something. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, these meals are all things that you're you're planning with the idea to using them and to make your week a much more calm yes. uh, sort of situation. So give us an example. You okay. you do at the beginning of the book have a kind of Monday to Friday thing, but you talk about, say, cooking up at the beginning. Are you doing this on a Sunday? Or are you doing it at the weekend mostly? Yeah, funny. Cooking? I'm actually doing it today because it just suits that. So it's I, whenever, I can do it today. It's it's kind whenever of, you have yeah. the time. Really. But I love Sundays. I really do love Sundays. I'll give your listeners an idea of what my week, say, this yeah. week is like. So um, I didn't batch cook over the weekend. My weekend was crazy, but my freezer was pretty full. Um, I should also probably point out that my freezer is two shelves. That's it. And I don't yeah, I recommend Say, do you have a huge American no. freezer? Okay, because I only have a small freezer. I wouldn't too. know where to find my stuff. Right. Okay. I, I, that would freak me out. That's just too much. So I have a really small freezer. Um, you don't have to have a chest freezer to, um, to benefit from this. So I didn't get to batch cook over the weekend, but I had been batch cooking in previous weeks, even a few months ago. So I took out loads of stuff, like I had a lentil bolognese, so the whole family were able to have it. And we were even able to chop and change the pasta. I wanted buckwheat pasta. My boys love chickpea pasta. And then my husband was going for plain white spaghetti pasta like his childhood. And we were all satisfied. I have to say great. some people will be going, 
chickpea pasta A what is that and B how come your boys like chickpea pasta but you see if you grow up in a house with Susan Jane White that's, that's, that's what's going to happen on you offer. Know. like you know don't knock it um, you'd love your kids Funny, to eat you can get it in Duns can you yeah it's an organic range called Bunnelon and it's chickpea and wheat so I think it's 50-50 but I mean and I is go, it nice I, yeah okay. they, they prefer that they I'm will go try for that, that. Yeah. but anyway go ahead so you have so this lemon bolognese that had been hanging out yeah. in your fridge you freezer. take it out the night before and it feels so good I can't tell you it feels like kind of scratching an itch and you feel like a cross between Marie Kondo and Mary Poppins. You know, it's just... a great advertisement. You should put that on the front. Say someone else said that, Susan. You know? um, but anyway, okay, so that was so the lentil bolognese. That was Monday. And then Tuesday, I actually had in the, in the fridge, I had lamb burgers for the boys. So I, I gave them lamb burgers with mashed avocado and a bit of coleslaw in it. I'm delighted that they eat cabbage if it's in the coleslaw. Um, that's not a regular thing, but I had it. Um, uh, and so they had that while I took a curry out for Trevor and I. Okay. Um, so that was Tuesday, Wednesday. But before we go on to Wednesday, because yeah. you mentioned the lamb burgers, um, this book is mostly full of vegetarian recipes, it has to be said. But yeah, you do have true. the odd meat one. And actually, you have a very interesting piece in the book about your, some people have an ethos, but you have a methos. <laughs> because I suppose people are, maybe might question, why are you putting meat in there at all? Because you are you are very much leaning towards the, the yeah, very much so. based yeah. diet. But you do have a kind of, uh, a theory meat. on the meat mm. thing and uh, what, why do you think it, yeah. it's okay? I think, well, my, my eldest went vegan for six months of this year from January to, to the summertime which is amazing. I was so proud of him and I, I took so much credit for it but actually it turned out there's an Arsenal footballer called Hector Bellerin. <laughs> <laughs> He's I was vegan. like equally That's peeved and delighted. But Who knew still. that the old uh, Premier knew? League could be there so you influential? Go, yeah. on, on well, just things. as well he latched onto Hector Bellerin and not someone else. He'd be like stumbling in in nightclubs in the weekend. But maybe so that's was, in your future, though. <laughs> Anyway, go on. <laughs> so that's why he, he went vegan and he really did embrace it and, and said no to meat. And he was listening to Greta Thornburg and he was he was um, very much engaged in school as well, I think, um, uh, just environmentalism. So it made sense to him. And I loved that. But quite prior to that, anyway, we've been we've been focusing on vegetables simply because they they taste amazing in curries. And if we're if if you make vegetables taste really good, you're not going to miss meat. So rather than saying no, we're cutting down on meat because I don't think penance is a way to ever treat food. It's just unhelpful, um, certainly to me. Um, we just upped our our, our veggie intake um, and. It was really easy. We didn't even know. We upped our veggie intake. And the mythos that you're referring to in the book, the chapter that I've written about um, meat, I, I started looking at the sort of misadventure that the meat industry is. When you walk into a supermarket, you're surrounded by dismembered limbs of animals. That's really normal to you and I. Um, uh, I'm pretty ashamed that it's normal but it freaked my son Benjamin because I'd never bring them to big huge supermarkets um, I'd end up you know having a tantrum myself <laughs> being in the aisle and my uh, legs and arms flaying it's just hard to bring children into supermarkets so I generally don't do it so looking at his reaction when he found meat he was like this is disgusting what part of the animal is this like yeah you know, you're right. This is disgusting. Why are we normalizing this? So my approach is when I, ha- when I get meat, I go to a butcher's and I talk to the butcher. And um, I, so I stood by meat. Meat isn't bad. It's, it's just, I think, our attitude towards it and having our mindless kind of bovine consumption of it. Excuse yeah. the pun. But um, so I've reassessed my relationship with meat. I'm very happy to visit butchers rather than get it in plastic boxes in supermarkets. Um, and so that, that that's suited us. And you know what? I'm using 
everything now rather than throwing out a chicken carcass. I'm I'm always using um, the chicken carcass for bone broth. Um, uh, and actually what I do in my freezer, I have a, um, something called a freezer stock bag. And this has been incredible for um, the amount of soups and stock that we're taking in our family. So everything from carrot peels to, you know, when you only need a half a clove of garlic and you're wondering, what am I going to do with the other bit? I just stick it in my freezer bag. So by the end of every week, I have this bag of stuff that would have been in a compost heap and I make stock from it with either the chicken carcass. If you don't have a chicken carcass, I'll put parmesan rinds mm. and it makes amazing stuff. Now, I'm just listening to you here and I, I think this is really fascinating, but there might be some people listening thinking, um, you know, is this out of my league in a way? And, you know, talking about, yes, it's all very well. You could go off and get your, you know, have your freezer bag and, and go to your butcher. But sometimes um, these two conversations, which are really interesting, can can feel a little off-putting to people. Yeah. What do you say? I mean, I'm sure you get it all the time, yeah. like whether it's cost, you know, the people who are, have, are living mm-hmm. on very little at the moment. Yeah. And, you know, often when people are penalised for not having healthy diets, it's because in their in their worlds, they feel like it's a necessity to go and get the cheapest stuff. Yeah. And it's often not the best stuff. Yeah. So, but you also talk about you've been in financial sort of straits like we all mm-hmm. have in various stages of our life. So it, this isn't an expensive kind of way no, of living, is it? It's cheaper. And that's another re- reason I just thought meat is sort of a luxury that um, I'd, you know I don't see necessary, especially when vegetarian cooking can taste so good. Now, it can taste pretty bad as well. So I've gone, I've, I've made as many mistakes as I have successes. And it's uh, luckily, it's the successes I've chronicled in the book. Thank goodness. But thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but the vegetarian curries, of which most of them are, are way cheaper than actually using meat. So for example, Dunstore has had, um, tonight I'm doing a butternut curry with green beans um, and the butternut cost one euro. Um, So I have two butternuts, that's going to serve eight and I'm going to stock my freezer for um, probably the cost of seven euro. So that's, it's, it's, I think it's, I'm spending less by using less meat, but I'm also, um, I don't feel like I'm penalising my taste buds or um, anybody else in my family. Yeah, because another person I find really interesting is Jack Monroe, you know, the bootstrap yeah, uh, yeah, chef. Yeah. And she is so good because she and, and she's been from a very sort of economically challenged situation in her mm-hmm. life, you know, single parent and um, all of that. And then she says exactly how much the recipes cost. And they're often like, you know, 20p or, you wow. know, 70p. Yeah. And it's because of all the things that you're saying. So in a way, I suppose it's about... I mean, it's not like you're going to get your book or, say, Jack Monroe's book in every classroom, but there's a certain mm. education uh, thing around this too, isn't there? Helping people to understand that actually a vegetable curry can be just yeah. as tasty or, you know, yeah. can yeah. not take loads of time. But yes. anyway, carry on to your Wednesday. So. Well, that's, well, it knits quite what you've just said there, not taking a lot of time knits perfectly into Wednesday because I just took something, uh, um, uh, have you heard of beef bourguignon? I did it with beetroot. So it's beetroot called bourguignon. Beet bourguignon. I, I just can't beat bourguignon. It is really good. I'm really? not very fond of uh, beetroot because there's mustard and red wine oh, and stock in it. Okay. So um, again, you know, the recipe... Um, and that freezes okay. It I mean, freezes beautifully. Because I was on beetroot, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have... No, it freezes. It's really meaty. And there's mushrooms in it. And if you're leery about mushrooms, you can leave the mushrooms out. It tastes just beautiful without it. And I had that with mashed potato and a bit of yogurt with grated horseradish in it. Um, or you just have a horseradish jar, um, which you can buy in, in all supermarkets as well, and stir it through the yogurt. And it was phenomenal. It was yeah. so tasty. And, um, you know, my husband, Trevor, isn't very fond of beetroot and um, loves beef. So he was um, not 
most impressed about the idea of beat boarding yacht and he but, loved it. He's like, this is, God, okay, this that's is in good, your top five, Susan. I, I know he has quite high standards and he, <laughs> he wouldn't be just humouring you by pretending to like no, your he beat never tries yacht. to humour me in relation to food. No. Okay, so then we're I should on tell to... your listeners he was a restaurant critic for that's a very I mean. long time in yeah. his life. So, so. so tell me when we're on Thursday then? Or? So tonight I'm going to do a lovely big butternut and green bean curry with coconut milk um, and loads. The trick is loads of um, spice. So in many recipes when you're doing a curry it might call for a one teaspoon of um, curry powder. I measure like 30 grams <laughs> so, which okay. is about five tablespoons and that's that's going to whack up the taste um, and just make it worth your while as well. It's, it's, it's um, I'm all for powerful um, pungent tastes and then I, I usually serve my curry either with a poached egg or beside rice and a bit of yogurt and yogurt lasts a long time in the fridge so you can you know you can go a week or two without cooking if you've got a few things in your freezer and a few things um, to knock up around it like a poached egg so one night you can have the poached egg another night fried halloumi maybe on top another night rice another night pompadom and yogurt so there's all these combinations I, I've I've been working on as well um Mainly because this is this is how I'm living. It's it's um, I I want more time in my life, and I want to be. You know what? I don't like feeling like a failure at six p.m. You know that honking stress yes, when you go. Yes, I do. What <laughs> am I going to feed the children? Yeah. Or and then you go. Oh my god! I have to feed myself as well. Yeah. And do, it's, do sometimes you know it gets boring. That's changed our our life of the week. It's funny because it was before um, I knew about your book, but uh, we make a black bean burrito thing so mm. it's basically a lovely sauce that just goes in um, tortillas and yeah. you add like sour cream and cheese and coriander Beautiful. and you just uh, it's a really Pick easy thing so we've started making that well I should say Johnny has my, my <laughs> partner has making that on a Sunday and putting it in the freezer so it's it's our Wednesday dinner every Wednesday so every Wednesday we have this absolute like you talked about that feeling of yeah. not feeling like a failure going, you know you're going to you're taking out on the Tuesday night you know that you've got all the other bits yeah. that need to go in it and all it means is sitting happily in so the all fridge. the chopping has happened all the chopping of stuff has happened on the Sunday when you actually have the time yeah. to do it so all that annoying bit that's the stressful bit of the cooking yeah. it's just done so you really just Wonderful. feel like well this is amazing Magic. but it's also a lovely dinner so yeah. we're doing one of them but I think with your book I'm going to definitely the three bean chilli sounds three amazing three bean chilli is amazing and that breaks I think about 12 portions and there's so different there's so many different ways so you could do it with tacos you could do it with burritos you could yeah. do it with pompadoms as well or rice or mashed potato or um, chopped up sweet potato there's so many ways of, of serving it but I'm just even thinking you're a lovely black bean recipe if yeah. you double that next time I can give it to you Susan if you like oh, you're fantastic you, you can maybe put it in your next book you I'll put, put it in my in Instagram book, account actually. actually my brother Brian won't let you because it's his he wants to have his own cookbook I shouldn't say that um, but listen what I love is Friday because you do something really interesting on Friday which again I wonder would many listeners want to attempt but I love the idea of it about your sharing you basically take it in turns with a neighbour oh, yes. of making yeah. a huge pot of yeah. something yeah. 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 and then yeah. you give half to your neighbour yeah. one Friday and then you know that the next week you're getting yeah. your you're getting your dinner from it's, the neighbour it's wonderful I mean you'd yeah. have to have trust there and everything I'm thinking who yeah. on my road yeah, I could yeah, do yeah, it yeah. but I've actually I've actually thought of someone I Brilliant. think Nessa across the road if she's listening might get in on it <laughs> with me but you know what I mean but it makes sense because they'll make you or it could even be on the same day you just swap halves so um, and if you're not going to use it that night that's fine you put it in your freezer it's amazing so yeah. there's lots of there's different that ways that communal sort of feeling is lovely yeah it's gorgeous and I really encourage people to have that conversation with their neighbours and even just to pick out a few recipes from the book and go here will you do that this week and I'll do this 
this. Um, and, and if there are any listeners who really love the idea of this and, and have no idea how they're going to start, look, starting a day that you're, you've got some time. So let, let's just say Sunday. A lot of people have Sunday. It might be Sunday. It might not be. And then own that space. So pick a podcast that you love listening to. Mm. Obviously, you're the women's all, podcast. Exactly. Or back to yours. <laughs> I'll put in a cross plug there. Thank you. <laughs> and then, or, you know, your, your favourite Spotify list. I'm really, I'm really vibing off um, Sufjan Stevens radio at the moment. I really love that. And then suddenly you own the space and you enjoy being in the kitchen. It's not a chore. And start with one recipe a week. And then by the end of the year, you know what? You're going to have mastered 52 beautiful recipes. So that's how easy it is a year later to actually get on top of this and and change your life. Um, you have two other books I should tell people, The Extra Virgin Kitchen and The Virtuous Tart, which won an Irish Book Award. And I should also say you've got a number of sweet, lovely, sweet recipes Yes, in this book in this too. Book, yeah. And you brought some along today which uh, look I amazing. Do. They're the almond butter brownies. Yes, that's Talk right. us through these brownies. Yeah, so which they I'm going to have a little are, taste of. Go for it. Because it was my birthday on Monday. Mm. I think I <laughs> So they are um, they, they, oh, wow. they, a drizzle of almond butter on the top and instead of butter I'm using coconut cream. Um, it actually works out cheaper as well. Coincidentally, I do that because my mum has an allergy to dairy and um uh, they're lovely. Yeah, and I don't really like much coconut. No, I know you're not. <laughs> I'm not a coconut, coconut fan, and I'm always wondering is there they're too not much? very coconutty. They're not. No. It's good. Yeah, and um, I I make several batches of those every week, and they freeze as well. Um, and I use them as currency with my children. So like. <laughs> <laughs> can't recommend them enough <laughs> you've also got unicorn bonbons unicorn bonbons so you know colour different. instead of buying different food colourings you can buy mother nature's plant colourings like turmeric for yellow um, this beetroot powder which sounds ridiculous but it's cheap it's a, a euro for a little tiny packet it's um, purple powder and you can you can make um, little purple bonbons um, from again desiccated coconut whizzing it up in a Nutribullet or a food processor with a bit of coconut oil and honey and my kids love these and they bring them into school as well and um, they might be green some days if I have like frozen barley grass powder which I bought two years ago <laughs> and I have frozen and something that's intrigued me strawberry and olive oil ice lollies yeah which doesn't sound very nice I have to tell you oh they're amazing okay. yeah yeah so it's just strawberries and a bit of banana you don't taste the banana but it gives the creaminess but also the olive oil any fat in um, when you freeze fat it's, it tastes beautiful it gives a better mouthfeel in the same way cacao butter will give a great mouthfeel to chocolate so the olive oil makes it just more luxurious then if you didn't have the olive oil it'd be kind of icy and sorbet-ish, which doesn't rock my boat. So by putting olive oil, it also makes the lycopene in the strawberries and there's a bit of tiny bit of tomato puree in it, makes that bioavailable in the body. That's the boring science part. So that's where well, it came I from actually, originally. I should tell people you're, you're, such a, you're, you're such an academic that the great thing is you learn so much reading your cookbooks always because you <laughs> really dig down into the you know the science behind what's going on when you Bit put these geek, foods together. Yeah, it, those kind of things excite me. So um, there, I mean, that, that sounds as fancy as it goes. There's lots of, you know, there's lots of cookie recipes that you yeah. put your cookie dough in um, in the freezer as well. Um, uh, and also there's different chapters where, you know, you're making freezer dressings or chimichurri or sriracha yeah I have to speak to you about something because you say in a book that if if people don't like if you don't like kimchi you can't be my friend and I have in the <laughs> last year discovered kimchi and I absolutely love it but I never dreamt of making it myself like it's not something I ever have yeah. in my house but you have a recipe for kimchi yeah. now if people don't know what kimchi is just you might explain because yeah, I don't think I can even these, explain I just know what 
Yeah. I just know what it tastes like and it's delicious. Oh, it's so good. And you'll never taste two kimchis like the, the, like each other. Um, they're all very unique. Um, and that's because it's a fermented product. So it's fermented cabbage. Which um, sounds awful. Sounds But it's horrific. amazing. <laughs> sounds, it would, would traumatise a child if you tried to give them <laughs> fermented cabbage. But it's really spicy as well. Um, and you can you can buy them in any health food store. So a, a lot of the time I buy my kimchi. And then other time I, it's really, really, really simple to make. So if I have time, I'll make my own kimchi. Okay. I didn't even know that you could buy it in health food. There you go. I'm going straight out now and buying because I think my favourite thing in your book, just to finish, is the kimchi toasty. Yeah. I mean, I just like toasted sandwiches and you've got kimchi involved and beautiful cheese. Like, oh my God. Yeah, we have that. We had that last night actually for dinner. Again, kimchi stays in the fridge for eight to 12 weeks and so does the cheese it, it lasts for ages in the fridge so and then I take the slices of bread out of my this is where my Mary Poppins comes in I can take slices of bread out of my freezer and go yeah tonight you know what we're going to have Kim cheese toaster or Kim cheesies we call them Kim cheesies so that's how easy this is now and I just need to let, let you have a final word because yeah. we're talking about a lot of things that some people just don't have in their fridge not doing, so if people are thinking yeah yeah this book sounds completely out of my league and not practical for my life. Could you please give um, an answer to that question? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, it, it is for everyone, whether you come from a family of six or seven people or whether you're single. Because you know what it is? It's, it, it really, it's gifting you time. So this incredibly demanding world we live in and chaotic world, we have less time every single day. So there's over 180 recipes in there. I guarantee you're going to find 10 that'll change your weekly pattern. Um, and regardless that you can go of to Duns and get this stuff that you need. Yes, because that's where because I've that's been shopping the other thing every people, week and little Right, and so you have been, but people think, well, where am I going to go and get all this mad sounding stuff? Yeah. It's in no, Duns now. There's this no superfoods in or here. Or we should say Tesco or Aldi or Lidl. Yes, we should say, preference. but yes, to be, to be democratic <laughs> yeah. about the whole process. Yes, and there is... It, it is not a sonata to superfoods, which my previous books were, because those kind of foods excited me and I wanted to learn more about um, how to bring in new exotic foods into my life. But now it's I'm hunkering down, I'm looking at price, I'm looking at time, I'm looking at convenience. I have to get everything in the same trolley in just one shop every fortnight. I don't even go once a week. So, okay, so that's you're being my a life. different kind of batch this time. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. But always I a very clever a batch, batch, which is the name of the book. Thank you very and much. I must tell people that as with every single thing, you do Susan um, it is so well written uh, there's not a cliche in this book it's fun and it you know you, your use of language is just amazing and and it makes you. you want to go and make everything in it so congratulations Excellent. on another brilliant book and I hope it gets loads of brilliant reviews and awards and thank thanks for coming in and thanks for the almond butter brownies oh great to have you thank you to all the listeners for accommodating me in your living room today hey. and that's it for today Thanks to our guests, Millie Hill and Susan Jane White. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we are on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and until next time, thanks for listening. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.